The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. A few years ago, my wife and I got into this really bad, let's call it a pattern of communication. After dinner, just as we were getting ready to wind down for the evening, I'd start going through the mail. For whatever reason, that season, our electricity bill was climbing like crazy, and I'd just get so anxious about it. I remember I'd pick up the bill and shake it in the air and say, Francis, how did we spend $400 on electricity? After a brief freakout, I'd feel kind of better, but then Francis would feel worse because how did we spend that much money on electricity and was it going to cause a problem for us? Her mind would start spinning. She'd be annoyed with me. I'd be annoyed with her. Next thing you know, we'd be bickering over little things that didn't matter. Or worse, stewing on opposite sides of the living room. Pretty quickly, we figured out that the problem wasn't us or even the electricity. It was timing. We were fighting because this stressor hit when we were already exhausted. So we instituted a weekly family meeting. Now we keep this Google Doc where we add to a running agenda of things to discuss. High energy bill, vacation dates, why there's marker on the wall in the hallway. There's always marker on the wall in the hallway. Every Tuesday from 9 to 9.30 a.m., Francis and I hold a meeting often over Zoom. We tick through the list, assigning action items and reporting back. So now I don't have to explode about the energy bill late at night. When I get it, I can just add it to the agenda and know that we will take care of it. It's amazing what a difference timing can make, right? We kind of know that. And yet, we devote so little energy to considering timing in most of the things we do. A few years ago, Dan Pink wrote a book about this. It was called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan came into the studio back then, and on Hello Monday we talked a ton about how to use morning time well. That was a great show, but there's this whole part of that interview that we really didn't emphasize enough. This idea that the more you know how timing works for you and for everyone else around you, the happier and more productive you can be. What I've discovered in doing this research on timing is that you have questions that are being asked. What's the effect of time of day on our mood? What's the effect of time of day on our performance? How do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? How do groups synchronize in time? And these questions are being asked in multiple disciplines, sometimes identical questions, but people aren't talking to each other. Psychologists aren't talking to the economists. The economists aren't talking to the anthropologists. The anthropologists aren't talking to the chronobiologists. And I felt if you went wide enough and deep enough into this research, you could begin to piece together the evidence-based ways to actually plan out your day, among other parts of your life, in a more evidence-based way. This topic is really top of mind for me right now because my time is tight. I rarely have the bandwidth to work when I'm not at work because the kids are so young and they require so much of me. I need to make the most of these minutes. So I'm bringing back Dan's conversation from 2019. As Dan and I talk, I want you to listen for his advice on when other people are likely to have the best focus and brain power. It'll help you understand yourself, but also 
You're gonna wanna listen because it may influence when you choose to make appointments with other people, like your doctor or your lawyer. After this conversation, stick around because we're bringing back the book segment with Scott Ulster. But for now, here's Dan. At this particular level, what, what, what we realize is, is something I think monumentally important but often overlooked, which is that our brain power does not remain constant over the course of a day. Now, we see that in research in chronobiology. We see that in research in many of the medical fields. We see that even in research in social psychology and economics, in experimental settings where you ask people to do certain kinds of tasks or solve different kinds of problems. That seems to me a pretty big deal. I mean, that seems to me also like common sense. I think about myself, like, here we are. We are talking, Dan, mid-morning. It's prime time for us to be talking when it comes to my brain. Totally. If we were having this conversation this afternoon around 3.30, I would need a couple of cups of coffee to be this sharp. Right. Probably me, too. But I think that in many cases in organizations, we're not intentional about that. We don't think about that. We basically assume that the way we schedule a day typically is that we assume that our brain power is constant throughout the day. That is not true. There are material differences in performance based on time of day. And you see this, again, in a whole array of research. So you look at things like, I'll give you an example, standardized testing. There's an important study out of Denmark showing that kids who take standardized tests in the afternoon score as if they've missed two weeks of school versus kids who take tests in the morning. Okay. So all of a sudden, you've called into question, yet again, the value of standardized tests as a policymaking tool. You see it in the medical profession, big time. So, I mean, I, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but I would love for you to articulate it for our listeners. And I should say, I, you know, I, I recently had to have surgery. And after reading your book, I made sure that I was first on the surgeon's list so that it would be first thing in the morning. Okay, you seriously have kept me in the writing business two more weeks with that. <laughs> because, like, that to me is the, the one of the most important things. If you can avoid it, do not go into the hospital in the afternoon. The evidence is overwhelming. Nobody in my family is allowed to have an important medical appointment or go to the hospital in the afternoon. The evidence is overwhelming. And what is that evidence? Oh, okay, let's talk about hospital-acquired infections, which is a topic everybody likes to discuss, right? First line of defense is hand washing in hospitals. Hand washing in hospitals deteriorates significantly in the afternoon. This is the work of Katie Milkman, Jason Reese, and Heng Chen Dai, who looked, charted this at several thousand hospitals. Huge drop off in hand washing in hospitals in the afternoon. Look at anesthesia errors, four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. There was just a paper that came out maybe four weeks ago as we were talking here about uh, prescribing unnecessary opioids, much more likely in afternoon appointments versus morning appointments. You look at the prescribing of unnecessary antibiotics, which is one reason why we have hospital-acquired infections, much more likely in afternoon exams versus morning exams. Let's t- should we talk about my colonoscopy? So, <laughs> I don't know what. Let's. let's talk about it. What, I had the same, you know, I'm at the age where I had to have a colonoscopy. So I, go, I, I had a colonoscopy at nine in the morning. Why? Because there's research showing that doctors find twice as many polyps in morning appointments versus afternoon appointments for the same population. So again, there are material differences in performance based on time of a day. And we haven't reckoned with that as bosses, as 
writers, as contributors to teams, as medical professionals, as patients, as spouses, as, as, as parents, as teachers, as students. Okay. So, Dan, I understand that if I am going to take on something significant, schedule myself for surgery, maybe schedule that big review with my boss, I'm going to avoid the afternoons. But if I, as a professional, want to do my best work all day, is there a way that I can make the afternoon work for me? Yes. And and again, I don't want to say that the morning is right for everybody because it's more nuance. It's more nuance for that. Here's what we know. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll steer this ship to actually answer your question here in a moment. Here's what we know. There's this. So we talk about I'm a morning person. I'm an evening person. All right. It sounds like folklore, but it's not. There's a whole field of chronobiology that has explored the concept of chronotype, which is basically your propensity. Do you naturally wake up early and go to sleep early? Do you naturally wake up late and go to sleep late? Um, what we know in the distribution is that about 15% of us are very strong morning people. 20% of us are very strong evening people. Two-thirds of us are in the middle. But we sort of lean toward the morning side. We sort of lean toward that lark versus the owl side. And so and, – and what we know is that is – that, is this, that, that about 80% of us go through the day in this order, peak trough recovery. We have our peak early in the day. We have a trough in the middle of the day. Then we have a recovery later in the day. Owls, the 20% of us who are hardcore night people, very different. They hit their peak much, 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 much later in the day. So if you were an owl and I were an owl, I'm not. I don't think either one of us are. But if you, but if you, were, if you were talking to a hardcore owl, um, that person is going to be less sharp at this time of day that we're talking, Jesse, than he or she would if you were talking to them at 8 o'clock at night. Right. So – that group of people must have a set of strategies to navigate a world that is really just not exactly designed for them to succeed. A disproportionate number of them become self-employed because they can't abide by the traditional kinds of schedules or they suffer. They suffer from sleep deprivation and underperformance. Is there a way that you can train your biology into being something that you're not? Barely. I mean, really not. These are, you know, heavily imprinted. It's like, you know, it's uh, so our, our chronotype changes over over time. So little kids are very larky. People from the mid-teens to the mid-20s have a period in their life where they move much toward greater lateness. And then in general, most people, many people, um, return to larkiness over time. But it's very difficult to do. It's like if, you're, if you naturally wake up late and go to sleep late, uh, an 8 o'clock staff meeting is never going to be great for you. 8 a.m. staff meeting is never going to be great for you. And so you have to... What, what should be happening is that the organization should be accommodated in the individual rather than the reverse. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more on how to get timing right for anything and everything with Dan Pink. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers 
and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Okay, we're back. Before we dive in, thanks to listeners who reached out to share thoughts on the show with me. Your feedback is helping us improve. If you've listened for a while and you'd be willing to spend 20 minutes on the phone with me answering a few questions... Email me at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Thank you. When Dan and I spoke, my son Jude was still very little. I was in that early period of parenting when I hadn't quite worked out my new identity. Hadn't quite figured out how I functioned as both a colleague and a parent. And also, Jude woke up so early, like 5 a.m. every morning, like clockwork. Perfect. So you got about, like... 11 more years of larkiness. Could you just lie to me and boil it <laughs> down right, a little 10 bit? 10 more years. Um, <laughs> no, so so little kids, very larky. They get up. So elementary school students, they can start school pretty early. But we, there's a biological change that occurs in you know the early to mid-teens where we think older people think these teenagers are lazy. No, they're actually – their chronotype is changing often only for a 10-year duration or so. But they just naturally wake up late and go to sleep late. And, what, and so what you have is you have the American Academy of Pediatrics has several years ago said, implored school districts around America, do not start school for teenagers before 8.30 in the morning. Don't do it. It's contraindicated by everything we – I, I mean, like, you, you trust your pediatrician, right? Yes. I, I love – I mean, my, my, my kids are actually aging out of pediatrician, but we love our pediatrician. We revere our pediatrician. So imagine your pediatrician and, and my kid's pediatrician and other pediatricians in America linking arms, marching down Fifth Avenue saying, don't start school before 830. And yet most districts ignore that. Um, and the, the evidence is just overwhelming. Well, and so California, God bless them, signed into uh, the, uh, Governor Newsom signed into law uh, a provision saying in there's some exceptions, but in general, schools should start no earlier than 8:30 for for teenagers. Well, Governor Brown vetoed that same piece of legislation, though. Or let's talk about say the company that I work in. I am part of a global news team. Yes. We have reporters on the ground working in Australia, Japan, UK, San Francisco. We all need to get together on video conference, and we do many times a week. The time never works for everyone. Exactly. Is there, is there a, something that you would suggest? Yeah, I, I, I would. For, first of all, let's, let's diagnose the problem, and let, let, let's, look, let's look at the problem at the, at the root level and recognize that it is a problem that doesn't have an easy solution. So let's go back. Let's seriously talk about it in evolutionary terms. We have a brain that became our brain during a certain period of human of, of civil, barely even civilization of of of, of existence. Um, and when the time that our brain evolved, there were not hours, let alone time zones. 
it was impossible for – there were no podcasts, Jesse, believe it or not, because no. it was impossible for anybody to hear your voice who wasn't within your immediate sound of your voice. So our brains are not designed to have conversations with people in different time zones, all right? So our brains are just not equipped for that kind of thing. So it's never going to be perfect. I think that there are two modest Band-Aid solutions here. One of them is this. My – belief has always been that we meet we have too many meetings and too many conference calls in organizations. And so a way to solve this particular problem is as follows. You look at that conference call as a as a collection of tasks to be done, questions to be asked, information to be discovered, whatever. And you say in that basket of tasks, what can we do asynchronously? And there probably are some things you could do asynchronously. Take those out of the basket and have people do it asynchronously. So let's say your, your team of journalists say, let's, um, uh, let's talk about uh, some story ideas. Uh, let's discuss some story ideas. Instead of generating the ideas in real time, make those asynchronous, have people generate the ideas, share the ideas, and then do something, then, then discuss them synchronously, which you actually have to do. So, right. so make some things, that, take what's asynchronous and allow people to do it at their best time. The, only, and the other thing, which is a band-aid, is spread the pain. So just don't make the people in um, yes. Australia uh, have to do all their calls at 6 o'clock in the morning so the New Yorkers can do it when they're fresh and ready. And also, not all work is the same, right? There is work that takes a lot of firepower and thinking. There is Absolutely. work this that is— really is really important. Right? And so how do we figure out when to do what work? That's a really, really important point. So among the things we know in, about the day is, as I said, our brain power changes over the course of a day. The changes are significant. But as just exactly as you say, Jesse, the, the right time to do something really depends on what you're doing. And so here's what we know. So go back to this, this pattern of the day that we have, peak trough recovery, peak early, trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day for 80% of us. The owls out there who are, might be listening to this at 2 o'clock in the morning, you should be doing your work because you're at your peak right now. You have your peak <laughs> at you know, much, much later in the day. But here's the thing. During our peak – that's when the key aspect of the peak period, whether it's early in the day or late, is that that's when we are most vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? Vigilance means you're able to bat away distractions. So that's when the research shows we should be doing what's called sort of broadheading of our analytic work, which is basically work that requires heads down, focus, attention, um, analyzing data, going over the steps of a strategy. I would, I would actually put writing in that category because as, you, as a writer, you know that the moment you sit down at the keyboard, the whole universe begins conspiring for ways to distract you. That's so, called the internet. Yeah. So you want to be at your point of lower, least distractibility. So we should be doing our analytic work during the peak. During that trough period, early to mid-afternoon, what we should be doing is we should be where we can is grouping more of our administrative work, work that doesn't require massive brain power, answering our routine emails filling out expense reports, whatever. And here's the problem. Listen, I'm a sinner. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be saved, but I know that I'm, fl I'm a flawed and, and I need salvation. I, I try not to do this, which goes back to my morning routine. But, you know, on, on writing days, what I would sometimes do is the first thing I do when I come into my office at 845, showered and caffeinated and well-informed on the sports world, is check my email, which is a stupid thing to do. Right. Because I have this fleeting period of my peak vigilance and I'm squandering and answering emails. So I should probably shift those to that trough period. Now, the recovery period, 
And again, there are changes in mood. Our mood peaks, it drops, and then it returns. The recovery period, which for a lot of us is late in the afternoon, early in the evening, our mood is up, but our vigilance is not. So that makes it a good time for things that require more mental looseness. Okay. The mental looseness would be things like, um, let's brainstorm some ideas. You've been in brainstorming sessions where people are hypervigilant, right? That's stupid. That's a stupid idea. That don't, you want people to be a little bit looser. And so what you see, you see some really interesting experimental evidence is if you give people analytic problems, that 80%, about 80% of us get those, are more likely to get those right in the morning and wrong later in the day. But owls are more likely to get them wrong earlier and right later. But you give people more um, what are called insight problems, which are problems that have not obvious solutions or require divergent thinking or, you know, like don't bend to mathematical logic. You and I are more likely to get those questions right later in the day hmm. and wrong earlier in the day. Hmm. So, so what we should be doing is our insight work later in the day. And, 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 and getting back to me for a moment here and my schedule. So what I do is I go and I try to do – on writing days, I do my writing in the morning. I don't bring my phone with me into, the, into, the, um, into my office. I don't open up my email. I give myself a word count and I hit that word count. And until I hit that word count, I don't do anything else. Okay, yeah. so uh, let's let's go back to mornings. Yeah, yeah. So if a lot, yeah. if if you are a lark, and I, I like that language. Yeah. Um, or in the middle, third bird who leads. Third le- bird. Le- yeah, because like, I'm not a full fledged lark. I'm like, uh, if you look at the distribution, the distribution isn't a perfect bell curve at all. It's it's lumpier than that. So you have you have this really hardcore group on the twenty percent on the on the owls, and then you have people who are who are affirmed larks, but then you have a lot of people who kind of tilt toward that. And I'm, I'm in the middle who tilts toward larks. Okay, so here's another question about mornings. You talk about the importance of moments that allow us to reset, to sort of clean the slate yeah. and start over. New Year's is a great one. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah set your resolutions. Yeah. But you can also create your own resetting moments. Totally. Right, psychologically. So if you wake up and get a really bad start on the morning, let's say you're your phone, which is your alarm, which is true for you, I can see, starts blinking at you that, you know, you've got a text message from some relative and bang, you've gone down the left chute instead of the right chute. You're distracted. The day has started that way. How do you reset? Let me see here. What would be something? Let's say that – so let's say that one of my daughters were to text me early in the morning and she had some kind of problem. First of all, on that one, I would like – okay, that's that's a priority. That's more important than me hitting my 900-word mark today. So I would, I would take care of that. And let's say it, it meant that I didn't get into my office until, say, 1130. Um, that would be a bummer. But all I would do is say, you know what, in that kind of circumstances, I would say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, for today, I'm going to refine the goal a little bit. All right, we're going to go for 400 words or whatever, 450 words. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to recognize that I'm going into this trough period because I'm starting writing at 1130. And by 1130, I'm starving, I'm sure. So 1130, I go in there, I probably say, okay, I'm going to reboot. I'm going to have lunch or something like that. And then I go into my office and say, all right, we're going to Turn the dial back, 450 words. You're doing it at a suboptimal time. So what I would do in that circumstance, and I, this, this makes sense because I can think of scenarios where I've done this. I use, okay, this is a little bit rigid, but it works for me. I use a the Pomodoro technique. You know the Pomodoro technique? No. Oh, my gosh, Jesse. <laughs> take notes. Uh, so Pomodoro is the Italian word for tomato. And there used to be in... I guess in Italy and other places, these kitchen timers in the shape of a tomato that one would twist and then, you know, to yeah. time your stuff in the kitchen. And so this is a technique 
based on that, where what you do is you say you 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 do a particular task for you can set the time for 25 minutes or something like that. And in the afternoons, I would do that. So I, I have a thing on my computer, 25 minute, and I just set it and I just go. And then I then it goes off for 25 minutes. I take a five minute break and then I do another one. It's like intervals. Right. To, take an, to do another one. Take 25 minutes, five-minute break. 25 minutes, five-minute break. And I would do that to just power my way through those 450 words. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. Um, and I'm glad that we talked in the morning. Me too, because I would have been a wreck later in the day. That was Dan Pink. I always love having Dan in the studio. He has been back since. Go back into our archives and look up all of our past episodes. And if you want to read more about this book, check out When... The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And this week we bring back our new segment on books. A reminder that there are so many important books that come out all of the time, but we can't bring every author on the show. We want to make sure that you listeners are aware of all the big ideas, the things that people around you are going to be talking about and that are going to shape business and the conversations you have in the office in the months to come. So we're bringing on my colleague, Scott Ulster, who you have heard from before, to offer semi-frequent recommendations. Scott reads a ton. He helps to organize our book coverage here at LinkedIn. He sees just about everything. Uh, Here's Scott. Hey, Scott. Hey, Jesse. Okay, so Scott, when exactly do you have so much time to read? Oh, man. I, I guess I have to make the time. You know, it's just all in those extra spaces, right? Spaces between meetings, spaces over the weekend where you just maybe perhaps want to take a break from things like Netflix or walking your dog. You know, reading can go in in many different corners of your life. Are you a nighttime reader or a morning reader? Oh, I think I'm definitely a nighttime reader. (laughs) Well, I'm a morning reader, so there you go. Okay, so what is at the top of your reading pile this week? Yeah, this week it's all about The Courage of Compassion by Robin Steinberg. So talk to us about who our author is, first of all. Yeah, Robin Steinberg is, I would say, one of the major pioneers in public defense and criminal justice reform. She's devoted her life to being a public defender and to advocating for people who are within the criminal justice system who might otherwise be ignored. And she's founded a number of different organizations around this, most notably the Bronx Defenders. The Bronx Defenders championed this concept of holistic defense, which basically means that what happens in court isn't the only thing that affects people who are put through the system, that there's a whole slew of challenges associated with that. Uh, Scott, I feel like these topics are so important and topics we care a lot about at Hello Monday. In fact, we had a great episode on uh, an aspect of court reform um, that looked at restorative justice earlier this year. Our guest was Victoria Pratt. Um, In this book, what in particular is compelling for our audience? So Robin structures the book as a memoir, but she uses the memoir format to talk about two critical questions when it comes to public defense and criminal justice reform. The first is very simple, and it's a question that she's probably received throughout her 35-year career. And it's simply, how do you defend these people? And what she means when she says that is, you know, these are people who have been accused of really serious crimes, uh, crimes like murder, like rape, like child abuse. And her, her way of approaching this question, which is something that she's clearly grappled with throughout her career, is simply about seeing the humanity in everyone. And that's where the compassion comes from. 
So for her, it's all about asking this other question, which is, should somebody be judged and written off entirely because of what they did on the very worst day of their life, the very worst uh, moment in their life? Should we write someone off entirely? It's a difficult question to answer because, like I said, the nature of some of these crimes, they're very severe. But for her, her way of being able to defend these people is to see the entire person, not to excuse their behavior or to write it off, but to help find an explanation for that behavior. So, Scott, are there lessons in this book that you can draw out that apply to all of our lives more broadly? 100%. So for me, you know, when I was making my way through this book, I was thinking of all the ways that every single one of us encounter these moments with other people, people we may struggle with, people who may make decisions that we don't necessarily agree with. And for Robin Steinberg, it was all about let me see and examine the conditions that led to this behavior, that led to this moment. And can I see the human behind those actions? Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so final question. We're going to do the same final question every time we do the book segment. Scott, leave us with one tiny detail, something you're going to remember from this book. One of the things from Steinberg's book uh, that has stuck with me is this quote that she gives from Scarlett Lewis. And Scarlett Lewis is a mother who lost her six-year-old child uh, at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. And Lewis, I believe this was from an interview uh, with NPR, And Lewis said that there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are good people, and there are good people in pain. And for me, that encapsulates the heart of Steinberg's narrative, the heart of her career, perhaps, which is just that can we see that greater humanity in people? People in pain. That is a somber note and an important note to land on. Scott, please keep reading. Um, because we keep appreciating your perspective on the books that matter most this year. And we'll talk to you the next time we have a book segment. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Jesse. Now my weekly reminder to join us for office hours. Sarah is away this week. I hope she's having a great time on vacation. Michaela Greer, friend of the podcast, is stepping in once again for office hours. So come hang out with me and Michaela. We'll get together, as we always do, Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the LinkedIn news page. If you can't find us, email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com, and I'll hit you back. You can also continue this conversation in our Hello Monday group on LinkedIn. To join, click right from the show notes. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Rafa Faria, Lolia Briggs, Wallace Truesdale, Kanaya Rogers, and Michaela Greer help us construct our sense of self, and they always get timing right. Enrique Matavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.